Hello and welcome to Journal Club. It is a, another episode of our student series, Journal Club. And today I'm welcoming back. Um, is this your third one now? This is my third, yes. So Haley Hickson, this is your third Journal Club. You're becoming a regular. <laughs> yes, um, I am. Which is pretty awesome. And um, so, but it's just you today. This is This will be the first time it's just you, right? You've always come when it was other people. Yep. The other two I had fellow classmates, but just me today. Yeah. You scared them off. <laughs> I must <Yeah>. have. <laughs> no, not at all. No. Uh, if anybody's listening who doesn't, we're scheduling this, like it's been summertime and everybody's kind of all over the place. I'm actually hoping, uh, hoping that things kind of pick up here. Um, so we've got a new class of first year vet students, class of 2026 um, that are starting and then um, folks that have been away for the summer coming back. So, um, I mean, I don't know how long it'll, how, uh, how scared the new first years will be and if they'll really be up for it, but I bet there'll be a couple bold ones. So I'm hoping we can schedule these a little bit more. Um, but I'm super excited that you're back. You're obviously enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've been doing great. So really happy to have you back. It's a fun way to do journal club. I've never done the podcast style. Yeah. I mean, it's fun. I I definitely enjoy it. So thank you for having me back. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I don't know that anybody else is doing it this way. I don't know. Um, But I I always like the idea of like, why just a few of us having the conversation other people can hear and, um, you know, have their own thoughts and listen. And for some people sitting and just reading an article by yourself might not be as enjoyable um, as having a conversation. And so listening to a podcast might be the the next best thing to having your own conversation. Um, So I just feel like sometimes we have really good conversations at Journal Club. It's like, man, it would have been cool if other people could have heard that. Oh, we can do it. We can make that a thing. So uh, yeah. So welcome back. Um, So you selected um, two articles today. I'm actually really excited about this topic um, as I don't know. Well, people will be able to tell once we get into it, I think. Um, But maybe uh, why don't you start by um, telling, telling us a little bit about uh, why you pick, so you pick two articles um, in a theme. So why don't you tell us how you came to these articles? Yeah. So I was thinking of ER, I'm doing my ER rotation here soon. And I was thinking of diseases I've seen in an ER setting and I don't have extensive ER experience, but I was thinking of diseases I've seen and I've just seen a lot of variation in how people treat it. And it's just something I still myself wanted to learn more about. And I thought what better time to try and learn more about something that I very well may see on rotations than with journal club. So I wanted to um, particularly look at acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome. And which for those of you that are uninitiated, the rest of us have been calling this HGE or hemorrhagic gastroenteritis for a really long time. So in the past few years, um, it's kind of the name, a new proposed name has come up. So AHDS, which doesn't quite roll off the tongue like HGE, um, but acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome, formerly known as as HGE, or for some people still known as HGE. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I just wanted to learn more about it just because I felt like my knowledge on it was a little limited in scope. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to kind of widen what I know about it and get some papers, read some papers about it. That's exactly what Journal Club is supposed to be about. So yeah, you're like, oh, here's the thing. You know, sometimes you're in the clinic and you come across something. You're like, I just don't really know that much about that. Um, And so that's a great opportunity to kind of push you into looking into it more or, and it doesn't even have to be. You're like, I I keep hearing about this and I need to learn more about it. Um, And I feel like that's just more meaningful than... Um, being assigned, like read this book, chapter one, chapter two, you know, um, there, there are benefits to that too, but it's really nice when there's a topic that you're like, oh, I have specific questions. Um, so we won't spend a lot of time on this, but maybe just quickly share 
because there's more than you pick two articles and there's more than two out there. Um, now maybe if you, if you, you know, choose the AHDS name, it will select for some more recent articles. Mm -hmm. Um, but how did you come across, like what, what search did you do? How did you find these articles? I was actually, I believe I was using Wiley's, I can't remember exactly which search, like search source I was using, but I wanted to find articles that were published in an emergency specific sort of journal focus. Okay. And um, was I started reading some, um, one of them stuck out to me just because I'd never heard of the markers that they were using to kind of assess the severity of disease. Uh-huh. So I picked that because I knew absolutely nothing about it. And then I do tend to like when I'm trying to first start learning about something, I like retrospective studies because for me, I think they're easy to grasp uh-huh. um, rather than some of the sometimes like primary uh, journals that I've read about, you know, we're they're performing research. Um, so I think it's a little more easy to sometimes when you're first trying to learn a topic, I think retrospective studies are easier to grasp. And so I, I notice I do tor- tend to levitate. I like that perspective. Yeah. I actually often say something similar when I don't know anything about something. I'll start with like a review article mm-hmm. or even sometimes a Wikipedia page, depending on if it exists for the thing I'm looking for. Um, but that's actually a really interesting point. And I hadn't, I hadn't considered that, but I think that's a really good idea is, um, is when you're like, I'm just still learning about something um, to start with a retrospective. I think that's a really reasonable way to approach it. Um, so yeah, love that. Very cool. Okay. Well, um, do you have a preference? Do you want to start then? Maybe should we start with a retrospective since that's kind of how, and then we can, and then we can dig into the other one. Okay. So the first of the two articles that you picked, um, about acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome, the first one is in the journal of veterinary internal medicine. Uh, this was from 2020 and it's uh, entitled a retrospective study of 237 dogs hospitalized with suspected AHDS syndrome. That was the S is syndrome, so that was redundant. But um, and called disease severity, treatment, and outcome. And this is by Dr. Dupont and colleagues. So yeah, this came out a couple of years ago, um, and as you said, it was a retrospective. So why don't you maybe give us a little bit of uh, you know just like a brief overview of the study, and then we can maybe get into some of the details, what questions you had, what what things stuck out with you. Yeah, so I jotted some notes down while I was reading through this. And so um, one of the reasons the authors chose to do this is that they noted that few studies on this topic have actually looked at uh, management and outcome in dogs Mm -hmm. with AHDS, which you're definitely right, doesn't roll off the tongue very well. (laughs) And just basically, we don't have enough data um, about AHDS and then especially patients that have concurrent signs of sepsis. And so... Mm -hmm. Um, I also noticed as I was reading it, they had a focus on discussing antimicrobial use within this disease. Um, and so they had two aims for this, this study. They wanted to report disease severity, and they did that using the AHDS index, mm-hmm. uh, clinical and hematologic markers of inflammation, and then outcome according to antimicrobial treatment regime. And their aim Second aim was to investigate the prevalence and severity of clinical parameters, potentially indicating sepsis, both before and after fluid resuscitation. Yeah. And so they used the HD... S index, um, but they also did a second one. They well, they looked at just SIRS criteria. It's kind of like another index of disease severity, or did they have SIRS? Um, which I thought was really nice. I like that they they did two different things and tried to compare them. So they'll and they'll talk about that more later. I'm sure you'll you'll chat about that. So. Um, yeah, so that was that was the big thing. All right. And so uh, this came out, um, this time frame was in the year 2014 to 2019. Mm-hmm. 
and um, dogs were included that both presented with hemorrhagic diarrhea and then those that presented for vomiting, which then was later followed by hemorrhagic diarrhea. Mm-hmm. And so um, they had various exclusion criteria, um, but uh, in particular, they allowed dogs to remain in the study if their fecal cultures, which um, was one of the um, studies or one of the aspects that they performed um, was positive for clostridium perfringens. And Mm -hmm. their justification for this was that there's evidence that there's a link between the disease and that organism. Yeah. And I also, I I think because it's, it can be totally normal to (laughs) cut to culture clostridium uh, C perfringens in the poop of a dog. So (laughs) yeah, I think that was a good call personally. Yeah, me as well. And so uh, they had three treatment groups um, and they distributed those dogs based on uh, whether or not they received antimicrobials. So there was a no antimicrobial group, one antimicrobial received, or then two antimicrobials received. Mm -hmm. And then they assessed um, both the AHDS index, the SIRS criteria, uh, C-reactive protein levels for those dogs that had that measure performed, and then their response to fluid therapy. And so um, in total, they had 237 dogs to um, include in this. Um, And top breeds of that group were Labradors, small mixed breeds, Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, and Mini Schnauzers. What do you think the significance of those breeds are? I know I, prior to even reading this report, I knew that Mini Schnauzers in particular, I, I believe I remember reading somewhere or learning somewhere that they are predisposed to HGE or the new AHDS. Um, I I hadn't come across that actually. And other than that, the other breeds, I wasn't sure if that. Yeah. I mean, this is a, it's a syndrome, right? So we don't even know what causes it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I'm honestly a little skeptical about the schnauzer thing because like, oh, I don't know. We don't know what causes it. So how can you be predisposed to something and we don't even know what it is? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think the breed thing is probably, if I had to guess, I would say more just a reflection of the breeds that they tend to see at that hospital. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, we yeah. see it in all sorts of different types of dogs. Um, if I were going to make a guess, and this is just a guess, this is not based on any science, I feel like it tends to be small and um, like mid-sized dogs. Um, like I don't tend to see it in large and giant breed dogs. So I was a little surprised that they had a lot of labs, except we see a lot of labs, mm-hmm. um, you know, in general. And so, uh, yeah, but I, I don't know that I would take too much out of the breed distribution, especially given that it was retrospective. If you'd been like, there's 237 dogs and like 183 had been schnauzers. I'd be like, Oh, okay. All right. I'm, I'm, that's fair. But like, what's the normal distribution of breeds presented to that hospital for anything else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's hard to put that in context. So we always report that, but I never really know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. just going to be honest. Yeah. And as I read papers about, it's just interesting to me that we still really don't know a lot about what causes this at all. Oh yeah. I mean, there's theories, but, and, and I think they talk about this um, in both of the papers mm-hmm. that you uh, brought today, but yeah, we don't know. People have their theories. Um, and it's funny because they talk about, you know, the clostridium, the toxins produced by, by um, some clostridia species as being part of the mechanism. But then when we get to the other paper, they're going to be like, mm, it's just, mm, yeah. yeah, which is hard, right? When it's a syndrome, because we don't, there is no gold standard diagnosis. Like it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. So you could be like, well, your syndrome is different than my syndrome. Like maybe, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know what your, like you got to come up with a disease that's repeatable. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. So anyway, um, Okay, so they had all these dogs. 237 is a good number, um, so that's that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So then what did they do? So um, next they started uh, assessing uh, some of the parameters that we just discussed. And so um, 
they, without going into extensive details, so um, 62% of the dogs had received no um, antimicrobials within that group, but of the dogs that did receive antimicrobials, the top ones used were ampicillin or amoxicillin, which Mm -hmm. I thought made sense considering the organism's that you're trying to target. And then um, of dogs that needed additional antimicrobials, those that were added on were generally in rifloxacin or metronidazole. Um, They found that dogs receiving no antimicrobials were significantly younger than dogs that were receiving antimicrobials. Um, That's interesting. Why, Why do you think that would be? So I remember reading, I think they justified one that they were unsure if there was, you know, since it's a retrospective study, they couldn't really assess if it's just clinicians just being more paranoid about older dogs and yeah. having less yeah. of an immune response. Yeah. Like um, it just, for me, that's like, is that a behavioral thing? Like, yeah. are we more inclined or at least the doctors that were part of this cohort that were studied? Cause like you said, it's retrospective. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I find that with those kinds of things in retrospective studies, I find really, really fascinating. Cause it's mm-hmm. like, are we just more inclined or like, Oh, it's older. It, maybe it can't fight off something as mm-hmm. much like, and, and I think that's normal, right? I probably do that. If you have like a three-year-old dog versus a 10 year old dog, mm-hmm. I'm going to be like, Ooh, but the 10 year old dog might, you know, he's going to be more frail. Yeah. <laughs> um, and does that influence our behavior when, Maybe it shouldn't, right? Yeah. Like that's not good science at that point. Um, okay, that, so I think that's fascinating, but yeah, keep going. I, I did think that was interesting. And so um, they talked about the flu par- fluid therapy across mm-hmm. all the dogs was Ringer's acetate. And then they um, everyone got a pretty standard treatment. Not that was just coincidence, because yeah. this was a retrospective study. Treat it. But yeah, sometimes like hospitals have like an unofficial protocol for okay. things and you know, like it just people treat things a similar way. And um, so, which is, is nice. Cause one of the hard things about retrospectives is there's so much variety and there mm-hmm. is still a lot of variety in, in the dogs in, in this paper, but, but not terrible, not terrible. Mm-hmm. And so uh, something I thought was interesting is most of the dogs, 214 of them presented with hemorrhagic diarrhea, but mm-hmm. any dog who didn't, I saw that they noted that they did develop hemorrhagic diarrhea at some point, hence right. their inclusion in this group. Yeah. But of the dogs that presented with vomitus, which was only 68, um, or 216 presented vomiting, but only 68 of those dogs had hematemesis in particular, which I don't know if I say that word correctly, but you know what everybody said, I think I say it differently. So sometimes I say him, uh, I usually say hematemesis, hematemesis, but okay. I don't know if that's right. Um, some people say hematemesis. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, I, it's a weird word. So basically, uh, Bloody vomit. Yeah. That's probably vomit. way easier I, to say. That's much easier. For Bloody me vomit. To Everybody knows what that means. Cool. <laughs> but they mentioned that dogs that did not present with vomitus, if they didn't present with it, they didn't develop it during the course of their hospitalization. And I haven't seen a lot of these cases. And I was curious if that's a trend you've normally seen as well. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty typical. So some of these dogs, I would say on average, they come in with just horrible, nasty, bloody diarrhea. Um, But there is a subset that also have vomiting. And um, yeah, and and I would say of the ones that vomit, some of them have blood in the vomit, but not all of them. Okay. Um, So that's that's been my experience. Um, And I, I, you know what, I've never really thought about it, but I think that if I, if I go back and try to remember that if they present with just diarrhea, I would agree that they don't develop vomiting later. That's not a thing. So, but if they, some of, if they have vomiting, I don't go, oh, well then this can't be HGE. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if they 
don't have vomiting, like it doesn't impact me one way okay. or the other. So I think that fits with what they reported here was like, sometimes they vomit, sometimes they don't, yeah. but they will have bloody diarrhea. Okay. Like that is, you know, and obviously that was one of their inclusion criteria. So for this study, of course, um, if it's an inclusion criteria, yeah. they'll all have it. Um, but I, I think I would have a really hard time diagnosing um, HGE or acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome without diarrhea. Okay. <laughs> um, it. It's kind of one of the key features of the yeah. syndrome. Um, so the next they looked at the AHDS index mm-hmm. and so that I didn't know, I, the, I think the other paper provided a pretty good background on kind of what the score range is and yeah. maybe this paper did too. And I just missed it. No, I don't think um, they went into, I think they were like, this has been published elsewhere. I'm pretty sure that's what this, which paper makes did. sense as well. Yeah. But the yeah. median score for these dogs was 13 and I believe it just goes one to 18. 18. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, 90% of the dogs had severe AHDS, which I guess, I don't, I'm not sure if this is standard, but that's the find as an index of greater than nine yeah that's basically the people who put the index together make those those assessments okay. and i'll be honest i don't routinely use this the, the, you would use this mostly if you were planning on doing a study uh, is is what you would do um or if you anticipate doing a study you want to make sure uh so that you could do a retrospective down the road is that you're at least documenting all of the things that would be included in the scale in the mm-hmm. scoring system so that you could figure out what the score was for patients okay. later um uh, but we can talk about more later, like how would you use that in a clinical patient? And I'll be honest, I'm not sure I would, uh, that I would necessarily feel like I need that score, mm-hmm. but it's really helpful for a study like this. How, mm-hmm. how is knowing that score really helpful? I would say knowing, well, based on what they discussed after that, mm-hmm. the dogs that had to receive antimicrobials um, had the highest um, AHDS scores. And so does that surprise you? It did not. No, exactly. So, you know, the animals that are appear more sick are generally going to trigger a clinician to be more worried and therefore they're going to, um, you know, be more likely to prescribe something like antimicrobials. Now we'll talk later about whether or not that's what they should do, but it makes sense to me that that would alter behaviors like this patient looks really sick. Um, but yeah, we can, we can chat more about whether that's the right response or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the, and so that's where the scoring system is really helpful mm-hmm. um, is you're trying to stratify. So they stratified patients based on the treatments they've received. And then afterwards said, that correlated with their scores. Mm-hmm. Um, now, not it correlated doesn't mean it was a perfect one to one, but it, it makes sense that they would correlate. Mm-hmm. And then all dogs that had survived a discharge, there was a significant decrease in that index score after one day of hospitalization, which went down to six for a median for that group, which I thought also made sense as well. Yeah, and and like that's one of the things I find really fascinating about this syndrome is that most that that comports with what we see. So six is like almost normal. Like I think what normal is like one to four, zero to four, or something like that is like meh, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so they went from really severe signs to like yeah, we're good in a day. Um, and that's how this syndrome goes. Like animals come in very sick and like put, it can be fatal if they're not treated. And then within a day they're like, cool, I'm good. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. <laughs> it's a very satisfying <laughs> syndrome to treat. Yeah. It really is. Um, because they come in looking really sick and the owners are freaking out appropriately because like their dog looks terrible. And, mm-hmm. and if you don't treat them, like I have had patients die. Um, but if you treat them aggressively, they can, they can do incredibly well really quickly, mm-hmm. um, which is exciting. So yeah, I, I, so far everything, you know, that you're, you're describing what they reported here, like fits with what I feel like I've observed clinically as well. Yeah. And that's, that was nice to read when I was doing this because of the cases of these I've seen in the clinic, I didn't have the chance to follow these patients out. So I just saw them very ill upon presentation, or maybe I saw them at some point during 
the hours after their initial presentation, but I never got to see the aftermath. And so yeah, that's nice the fun part. That they do well. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best part. Um, and so next they looked at the SIRS criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, the most prevalent one they saw was tachycardia um, and median time to... I'm going to skip that note because I don't know why I typed that right there where I did. <laughs> um, and so the most prevalent, we said the most prevalent criteria was tachycardia. And then on their CBC, it was a left shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in particular for their SERS criteria, which I thought it was good that they did this, they only included the CBCs of patients who they had resolved dehydration and they had blood work available after that dehydration had been resolved. Um, that way they could remove the potential um, impact of dehydration on things, I think particularly the, the PE parameters like tachycardia. And so um, I thought it was great that they did that um, for those dogs that they did have that available at. Um, they For the dogs that did meet more than two of the SERS criteria, most of those dogs were not surprisingly also the group receiving two um, antimicrobials, mm-hmm. which I think I also didn't surprise me in particular. Sure. Um, so next they, um, and then actually just kind of piggyback on that, those that also met more of the, also met greater than two of the SERS criteria had longer hospitalization and a less decrease in that index, which um, also made sense to me as well. And so next they looked at C-reactive protein. Um, the median was about 52 mg per liter. I can't say off the top of my head what the normal C-reactive protein is because I personally haven't seen that used clinically before. So, yeah, um, common. that was also one that was new for me. Um, yeah, so that's kind of in the moderate range. So, okay. um, I think normal is considered less than 50. Okay. Um, and then high is greater than a hundred. So like 50 in the low fifties is kind of in that. Meh. Okay. It's probably a little higher than normal, but not all that impressive. Okay. And so uh, I think the important takeaways from the C-reactive protein is there was a significant positive correlation between the AHDS index and the CRP level at hospitalization, but there was not a significant correlation with the number of days hospitalized. And so um, those dogs getting antimicrobials also had higher CRPs as well. And so um, next they looked at response to fluid therapy. The average time to rehydrate was about 12 hours for that median And then um, they found across all three treatment groups for those antimicrobials that rehydration led to a marked reduction in the number of SIRS criteria. Yeah. So. Like magic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then lastly, they just looked at uh, days hospitalized and survival to discharge. And for most dogs, the discharge was within 48 hours, which Mm -hmm. I wasn't familiar at the time that it could be that short. Um, Median hospitalization was one day. And again, kind of no surprise, those dogs with two antimicrobials had longer uh, hospitalization periods than those that were receiving none. And ultimately 96% survived a discharge, which um, is great to hear that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they do well, even if they present very ill. Yeah. Yeah. So they broke this up into the three groups, no antimicrobials, one or two. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you about using antimicrobials in AHDS? It sounds like for most patients, it's not it's not necessary unless okay. they have the SIRS. Unless they have so was it necessary? Sepsis. Was it necessary in the animals that got antimicrobials? Can we say that from this study? I don't think we can say that from. This I don't study. think we can say that from the study either. Yeah. So if you're saying all of these dogs had the same syndrome, mm-hmm. and the dogs that got no antimicrobials, ninety seven percent of those survived to discharge, mm-hmm. then. In, if this is all the same syndrome, mm-hmm. then in theory, none of them need antimicrobials. Mm-hmm. So why do some of them maybe need antimicrobials? 
What's your thought process there? So my understanding is those that need antimicrobials are those that are showing signs of sepsis. Okay, but sepsis is a different disease, right? So yes. why are they getting, so sepsis is a whole, you're saying they're getting a secondary sepsis? You know, I guess I don't know <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. Right, because if we're, we don't know what causes this. Yeah. Right. But we're saying all of these dogs had the same syndrome. Mm -hmm. That's what we're, that's what we're theorizing. Yeah. Um, and some of them need antimicrobials and some of them don't. Are you saying that, then you're saying that, do they not have the same, same syndrome? So here's what I, here's what I think. Um, here's the, the thought process is that the concern with um, AHDS is that you have damage to the GI tract. And that we know is one of the important barriers of keeping bacteria on the outside. Inside of the intestines is the outside of the body, right? And so if that becomes compromised, does that increase the risk of getting like bacterial translocation or, or secondary sepsis? Um, and, and so that's why in some cases of animals with AHDS or HGE, we do consider putting them on antimicrobials. The question I have is, how do you decide? And do you think this article would help? Does that, does that make sense, what I was yes. describing? Yeah. Do, you, do you think this article helps you decide who should get antimicrobials and who shouldn't? No, because um, personally, no, just because as I after I read this article and the next one, my thoughts were, I still don't really know. If yeah. I saw this a, a patient on clinics, there would definitely have to be more reading done on my end to kind of try and figure out what patient might need antimicrobials yeah. and those that don't. Yeah, I don't know that we're ever going to get a clear answer. Like it's hard to know, right? Mm -hmm. And they looked at the CRP, the C-reactive protein to see like, could that predict? And that doesn't seem like it's going to be. The the SERS criteria um, sounds really good, mm -hmm. except what's the problem? When you use the SERS criteria and then you give them fluids, what happens? It gets a lot better. It gets just, a lot better, yeah. right? And so... Um, uh, so I'll, I'll share with you kind of how I treat these cases clinically that I think fits really nicely with their, what they found here. Mm -hmm. So I have a case that comes in and it has the signs of, of HGE or HDS. Um, they often come in in shock, right? Um, they're very sick. They're tachycardic. Um, they might be hypothermic. Uh, they might have uh, pale pink gums and a prolonged CRT and weak pulses. Those are signs of shock. Those are signs of SIRS frequently. Mm -hmm. um, and if I assume all of them that have HGE need antimicrobials, I'm going to treat inappropriately a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So, but because they typically respond really nicely to fluid therapy, I'm going to give them a fluid bolus or maybe a couple fluid boluses. And if they respond well to initial fluid therapy, I'm good. I'm just going to do supportive care. If they're not responding to initial fluid therapy, then I'm going to wonder, did this patient get a secondary sepsis? Mm -hmm. Because if they're hypovolemic, which is going to be the mechanism of, of fatality in an animal with uh, typical AHDS, it, they, that's why an animal could die, right? In the short mm -hmm. term, because they're losing so much fluid through their GI tract. And so if they respond really well to that, cool, I fixed the hypovolemia. That was the problem. That's what was making them shocky. Mm -hmm. But if they don't respond, then I think, okay, well, they probably did have hypovolemia, but now do they also have another cause for shock, for shock like septic shock? Mm -hmm. So has in the course of this particular animal's disease, have they developed that secondary bacterial infection? Mm -hmm. And so if they don't respond um, initially to my fluid therapy, then I consider adding an antibiotic at that point. Okay. So there is no, for me, initial presentation criteria that would say this patient needs antibiotics. Okay. I don't think we can say that right off the bat because they all come in really sick. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can't be like, I, I don't think I can differentiate between, uh, you know, really, really sick HGE that needs antibiotics 
uh, antimicrobials and a really, really sick HGE um, that doesn't because mm-hmm. uh, not without treating first. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm going to treat over the next 10, 15 minutes. So, I mean, I'm going to make the decision pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So if I'm resuscitating and they resuscitate and they respond quickly, which is usually what they do. And it's super satisfying because they mm-hmm. come like, you know, a dish rag and they pop up and they're like, Hey, I, I'm back. <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. And it's very satisfying. And you'll mm-hmm. know that in like half an hour. Yeah. Um, and if you're resuscitating them or you're trying to resuscitate them and they don't really respond, those are the patients that I say, okay, now I'm more worried. Now, is that correct? I don't know either, but I think it, it matches with kind of what they've reported here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yes, you can sort of correlate these signs with, you know, the SERS criteria, things like that, but they're not necessarily predictive, but response to therapy, that's what I'm going to use. And could some of those patients survive without antibiotics? Probably. Um, but that, that's how I'm going to treat them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I trip it. And that's how I've been treating HGE for years. So the vast majority of my patients that I diagnosed with HGE or AHDS do not get antibiotics. Okay. There's a small subset of mine that I say, you're not responding to therapy. So either I, that's not the right diagnosis, right? And it's a syndrome, so it's hard to diagnose. Or they have it, but they've gotten a secondary sepsis. Okay. And when you do administer antibiotics, because one of their points was that, you know, amino penicillins may be adequate for dogs yeah. that do need it. Is that kind of a yep. common? Okay. Yep. Yep. That's pretty much what I'm usually going to start with. So amoxicillin, clavulonic acid, or ampicillin sulbactam, if I'm going injectable, usually is what I'm going to start with. Okay. And I'd say that probably works pretty well. Um, again, and at this point, I'm not covering, I'm, I'm not treating the HGE with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm treating. I'm now concerned there's a secondary bacterial sepsis. Okay. I think that's a secondary problem. I, so I, you know, that, that's where I'm going with this. And so if they're not responding, that's also a patient that I would be probably talking with the client and saying, normally the syndrome, they respond in 24 hours. If your dog responds in 24 hours, I might discontinue the antibiotics. Mm -hmm. I might be like, maybe I I jumped the gun there. If they're still sick for a couple of days and I'm going to say, I, we probably have treated the HGE, um, but maybe the secondary sepsis, we're going to have to continue. Okay. Um, so I'm going to also, just because I've given a dose of antibiotics doesn't mean I'm beholden to that forever. Like if, if new information comes out, like, ah, oh, I was probably wrong about that. Then I can stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, because I, you know, I worry people, anybody who's listened to the show knows I worry about inappropriate antimicrobial prescribing. Um, but also like if the patient is not doing well, you know, that plan doesn't fail very well. Mm-hmm. So if I'm wrong and I withhold antibiotics and they die from bacterial sepsis, I'm not doing my job. Um, but I'm going to try those fluid boluses first before I make that call. Okay. So that's I, that's how I approach it clinically. And I think that fits with kind of what they found. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have, uh, you know, what other thoughts did you have on on the study? What, what, what were your thoughts on this paper and overall? So I, I, I liked the paper mm-hmm. uh, personally. Um, I do tend to like retrospective studies as I kind of discussed earlier. Um, but I thought this gave me a good background about the syndrome and just mm-hmm. um, kind of a general approach that at least this hospital takes to managing these patients. Um, there are some areas that were kind of still not answered, um, I think from this report. Um, but you know, a question I did have for you is, um, I I think they kind of mentioned it somewhere in this paper too, as well, but how frequently do we really even use that AHDS index as well as the search criteria? Because of the cases I've seen, I just, I have never seen those used personally. Yeah. Again, I don't need a scoring system to tell me a patient is sick. Yeah. 
that's not what it, like, you're like, oh, this dog's really sick. And if you line up three dogs, you could probably be like, oh yeah, that dog looks sicker than that, that dog. I don't need a scale for that. Yeah. What the scale is for, it's an objective way that if you're going to do a study, prospective, retrospective, or otherwise, mm-hmm. I can have, here are some objective criteria that we can all agree. Um, and I'm going to stratify these patients into different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where it becomes useful. And so that's where keeping a good medical record is really important. Um, so even if I'm not using these scoring systems, um, I think it's important to be aware of them and say, but am I documenting the information that could be used mm-hmm. to go back in time? Or if, again, if you're doing a prospective study, it's really important to use some type of scoring system because mm-hmm. it'd be, you know, if you just stratify these patients just based on antimicrobials, right? If that's the only thing you did mm-hmm. um, from this study, you would be forced to wonder if antimicrobials were causing a poor outcome, right? Yeah. So you're like, okay, the the survival rate in uh, animals that got no antibiotics was 97%. If they got one antibiotic was 97%. If they got two antibiotics, it was 76%. So giving two antibiotics is associated with a worse outcome. We should probably stop giving two antibiotics to patients. Mm. Okay, yes, I see what you mean. Right? Yeah. Now, retrospectives are not good for cause and effect. Like you can't, but association, you'd say, but you could speculate and say, well, it's probably because those patients were sicker and that would make sense. But because we have a scoring system, we can say actually their score was worse or not. Okay. Right. So if you go back and you compare the scores and if the AHDS scores were the same in groups one, two, and three, Mm -hmm. you'd be like, actually we shouldn't be giving antibiotics Yeah. because even the patients that had scores that were, you know, just as bad and didn't get antibiotics, they did, they did equally well or even better. Mm Mm-hmm. So having that scoring system allows us to try to tease out the differences and and say, did these patients do worse because they were worse, right? Sicker patients are more likely to not do well. That Mm -hmm. just makes sense. Or was it something that we did that caused the outcome change? Um, So it can can affect cause and effect on both ends. You're like, oh, can this explain why things did better? Or does it explain maybe my treatment was associated with a worse outcome because it was the treatment's fault. Yeah. Um, so being able to tease that out. So that's where those types of scoring systems are really helpful. Okay. Um, you know, in, in an instant, sometimes we'll use it to monitor an individual patient over time. Um, again, I, I think for this particular syndrome, it's usually so dramatic, right? Um, I can glance at a patient, like if I was trying to differentiate between a score of 16 and a score of 13, the score is probably going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. But if I'm trying to differentiate between a score of 16 and a score of four, I can glance at the patient and be like, yeah, that one looks better than that one. Um, And that's what happens in this syndrome is there's such a dramatic improvement after about a day or so that I don't think clinically I need the score to tell me my patient is doing better because they're obviously better. Mm -hmm. But if I ever want to do a study, I really need to have these scoring systems. So um, most of the time when you have any type of severity score for something, that's their biggest use. Um, You can, some people will use them. And again, if there's a more subtle gradation, if you're trying to decide, is this dog actually getting better? Is it getting worse? Do I need to change my treatment plan? Doing serial monitoring of a scoring system um, can be helpful. But again, with AHDS, they're usually a pretty dramatic improvement. Okay, good to know. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I like the paper. I think it gave me a good background. I think it still leaves, there's just a gap in knowing yeah. what patients I need to pick for antibiotic therapy, antimicrobial yeah. therapy, um, since that wasn't addressed in this report. Um, but other than that, I liked the paper. Yeah, I thought it was really well done, very well organized. I have a couple beefs with it um, because, you know, I do. I Again, kudos to anybody who does this kind of research. There's a lot of work. And again, it was really well done. And I'm, I really, um, I'm pleased with in general, their conclusions. I think one of the beefs I have is they kind of tend to equate in this article, 
dehydration and hypovolemia. And that, uh, that one kind of bugs me a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, cause they even tried to stratify these patients by their degree of dehydration at one point. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons I printed out like the supplemental table one, um, because they were like, they're categorizing less than 5% dehydration, five to six, six to eight, eight to 10 and greater than 10%. And they, they told you how they did that. But I was just like, mm, I don't think we're that good at assessing dehydration. So they're like, no clinical abnormalities, no history of fluid loss. Okay. Or no, sorry, no clinical abnormalities with a history of fluid loss, less than 5%. I can agree with that. Um, and then slightly dry mucous membranes and slightly decreased skin. Like what does slightly mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Are you and I going to do that the same? That's five to 6%. And then six to 8% is just straight up dry mucous membrane. So not slightly, they're fully dry. I don't know what that means either. Mm-hmm. Um, and decreased skin turgor. Okay. Um, but we all know so many other things that impact skin turgor. Mm-hmm. And then eight to 10 is dry mucous membranes, decreased skin turgor. And now the eyes are retracted. Okay. Well, did you see what that dog looked like before? How do you know? Add on to all of that. The trouble with being able to assess dehydration is the fact that this was retrospective. Yeah. Um, so how often was that noted specifically, right? Um, because usually what people will do is they'll just put their percent dehydration. They might say something about a prolonged skin temp, but like, are they going to comment on how retracted the eyes were in their orbits or not, or something like that? So not mentioning. So I, I don't know that, especially in a retrospective, but even honestly in a prospective that you could, um, differentiate degrees of dehydration that well, yeah. um, based on a physical exam. But more than that, even is that they seem to sort of equate the dehydration in a, or use it almost interchangeably with the hypovolemia. Mm-hmm. And that, that one kind of irks me because the, the tachycardia is not a sign of dehydration. That's mm-hmm. a sign of hypovolemia. Yeah. Um, you know, so you're treating the, the tachycardia because they've lost a lot of volume quickly. You need to resuscitate them quickly with fluid boluses and they treated them appropriately. So it's more just kind of the language we use, but, mm-hmm. um, now I'm being a bit pedantic here, which is fair. And dehydration technically means loss of total body water. So if you're hypovolemic, technically you are dehydrated, but we tend to use those terms differently. Mm-hmm. We use dehydration to mean loss of, um, of body water from the interstitial compartment and, um, hypovolemia as loss, which the word literally means loss of volume from the, the, the blood compartment, the vascular space. Um, and, but again, dry mucous membranes does not tell me about what's happening in the vascular space. That's what our vitals are telling me about. So I don't know. That's one of, that's just kind of one of my beefs with, um, with that one, with it being a retrospective, trying to figure that out. And then just to kind of how they, um, kind of talked about the differences between dehydration and hypovolemia. That's a little bit of a pet peeve, but overall, I agree. This was a really, really well done study, very well organized, very, very well written. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think it's just one more piece of the story that says, this syndrome does not require antibiotics routinely. Yeah. There probably are some cases that have secondary complications um, and might need antimicrobials and that's super reasonable. But if you are routinely treating your HGE or HDS cases with antimicrobials, you are not doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Boom. There's one more. We have other evidence for this. There's a nice prospective study that was came out several years ago um, that shows that as well. Um, but that one excluded patients that showed signs of sepsis. I'm putting air quotes here, signs of sepsis. Okay. I was like, how do you decide? And that's what I liked about this one is that they included all of the patients uh, of varying degrees of severity, um, mm-hmm. stratified them based on whether or not they got antibiotics. Um, we don't know if they had sepsis or not. Like there's no way to go back because this is retrospective to confirm. Yes. Did they have have blood cultures and this, that, and the other thing. And, um, so a little bit, a little bit hard to say, but I still like that they included those sicker patients and yeah. some of them didn't get antibiotics and still did fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, really, really nice study. was excited to read it. Um, appreciate you.
picking that one. Oh, well, I'm glad it worked out for both of us then. Yeah. Oh, I love talking <laughs> about this stuff. Um, cool. So should we chat about the other one? Yeah. Sounds great to me. So the second article you picked is called, this one's um, a lot shorter, um, but like kind of is a little more challenging in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is called fecal markers of inflammation, protein loss, and microbial changes in dogs with acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome. And so this is by Hailman um, et al. And this came out of uh, JVAC, Journal of Veterinary, uh, Veterinary Emergency Critical Care in 2017. So uh, this sounds like this was the first one you came across. Yes, this was. Okay, so tell us, tell us about this one. Yeah, so I picked this one because I, like I mentioned earlier, I'd never heard anything about. Yeah, you're like, what? Fecal markers of inflammation. (laughs) Yeah, never had heard of what they were using here. So I thought, yeah, let's read about it. Let's read about it. And so um, for for this report, um, they, one reason they proposed why they did this is that we need less invasive markers than endoscopic biopsies of um, the intestines. And so um, that plus the fact that we, don't currently, um, we haven't studied um, these less invasive markers or things that could serve as less invasive markers in dogs who in particular have, um, or within the acute phase of the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one reason that they chose to look at this in particular. And yeah, we often do these kinds of things in like animals with chronic GI disease. We're like, okay, let's see what we can find. Let's do all these things. But yeah, in the short term, it's often hard to get those samples because you're, you know, trying to think about saving their lives and stuff like that. So yeah. um, they often get missed. And, and as we know, they get better a lot faster. So that window is really small. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's basically like, we don't know. Let's see what we can find. Yeah. And so um, they had two aims as well for the study. So they wanted to serially evaluate fecal samples from dogs during the onset and acute phase of AHDS. Mm-hmm. And they quantified fecal concentrations of, and these might be new to people listening as well, uh, canine calprotectin, which is also known as S100A889 protein complex, um, as well as S100A12, which are markers of inflammation, as well as canine alpha-1 proteinase inhibitor, which is a marker of GI protein loss. So again, completely new to me. Um, they Oh, really? Because I thought we talked about them all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, yeah. no, not quite. So yeah, these kind of biomarkers are, um, until one is kind of proven to be clinically useful, yeah, we we don't we don't talk about them routinely. Got it. This is not that we're not frequently measuring these samples. This is this is fairly novel. This and that's why you're yeah. like, oh, this is different. Mm-hmm. They're they're trying to figure it out. And then their second aim was to perform PCR um, to quantify fecal bacterial groups that have previously been shown to be decreased in dogs with this syndrome. And um, I have the bacteria that they looked at here. I know I would absolutely just butcher my pronunciation. It's a bunch of different of bacteria <laughs> that we find in poop. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to name them all. <laughs> And so um, this study size compared to the previous one was a lot smaller, Mm -hmm. um, but there are different types of studies. And so they only had seven dogs in this group that had Mm -hmm. AHDS. Um, This is really like a pilot study, right? This is kind of like, we're just starting a little bit here and we want to see, can we measure this? Is it, does it seem like a viable thing that um, should we spend money to do more studies on this? It's kind of what a pilot study is, right? They didn't call it a pilot study, but I would kind of consider it a pilot study. Yeah, I agree with you. And so um, they collected because this wasn't retrospective, they were able to standardize what they did for these dogs. And so um, they all the patients had things like a CBC chemistry done coagulation profile and so forth, um, blood cultures, um, the feces, um, they sent samples to um, Texas A and M's GI laboratory, which I 
read about in a lot of papers as well as learned about in class. Um, and from my understanding, it looks like they did the, they assessed the various proteins we discussed, like the canine cow protectant. It looks like they did that in-house. I'm, I wasn't sure if that was something done at Texas A&M. I'm not sure well, whether that's even I, relevant. I actually am trying to remember because you've got um, the... You have authors from, there are some of the authors are from Texas A&M. So I'm trying to, does it, do you remember, did they say where the study took place? I don't know. I was thinking this whole time it was at Texas A&M because that's where the, the GI lab is, but maybe it wasn't. Yes. <laughs> because you have, let's see. So it says over here on page one from the GI lab department of small animal clinical sciences at Texas A&M. Oh, that's for um, just the Dr. Unter. And then it looks like it was Germany. Gotcha. So um, the first author, Dr. Heilman or Heilman, um, was at the Small Animal Clinic and the College of Veterinary Medicine in uh, Leipzig. I don't know if I'm even saying that right, but yeah, in Germany. So maybe the samples were collected um, from dogs in Germany and then sent to, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't even sure if that was relevant. It was just a thought that I had when I was reading yeah. because I don't, it's I was a good curious then how often not sure. people send that for those sorts of uh, Let's testing. See. Well, if you look in the A&M. footnotes, that's usually where you can get information for um, like where things were done. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, unless they say in the manuscript itself, so it looks like footnote, they use the IDEX, um, VetMed, something, something, Prospect T, Giardia, snap parvo tests um so they usually have to tell you where something was done so that you if you could theoretically replicate it so okay um if they were doing it so they said they did it where did they say that which now i forgot which test you're talking about (laughs) um i was talking about the canine cow protectin the s100 a12 the the three i'll probably just call them three proteins from yeah unless we need to be specific about which one just because Mm -hmm. they're a mouthful but um it because part of their fecal um they so they did direct exams sodium nitrate flotations aerobic culture mm-hmm. and then tested for giardia parvovirus and c perfringens enterotoxin as well as c diff toxin a and b so from my understanding that was done at texas a&m yeah um I but i think they did the they measured those three proteins i guess in-house no i think but, those were all at texas a&m so okay. i'm looking under the m&m section fecal samples were collected they were frozen um, and then, and shipped frozen to the GI lab at Texas A&M. And then they thawed and then did calprotectin, uh, the A12, uh, alpha one PI concentrations were measured. Bacteri- okay. Yeah, yeah. Now the bacterial DNA extraction PCR, um, that may not have been done. I'm not sure where that one was done, but okay. yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that even mattered much. It was just yeah. a curious. I mean, it seems yeah. like Texas A&M common. can do a, a lot of stuff over in that lab. It seems like I've read a lot about samples being shipped over there. So, oh, one of these might've been here. Hang on. Clustered infusion. I'm looking at the um, footnotes still. Clustered infusions, <laughs> enterotoxin test, TM, Tech Lab Inc, Blacksburg VA. Oh, interesting. Okay. So they sent I some here. <laughs> I mean, maybe not right here, but in this town. Um, yeah. So probably here. Okay. Somewhere at the, the, maybe not the vet school even, but anyhow. So yeah, they have all, so it depends on which test. So they, it looks like they sent them to different things. So again, if you look at the footnotes, that'll kind of tell you where all the different uh, tests were sent. Okay. Good to know. Cool. And so um, every 24 hours, they assessed clinical disease severity and their evaluation to when I just checked the year was they called it the canine HG activity index. I'm not sure when the name change was because this was yeah. a 2017 report. It's, so. it's recent. Okay. <laughs> it so recent. because they still called it the H, they reference it as HGEAI um, yeah. throughout for to shorten it. 
Yeah. Um, and so um, they gave a bit more of a, a background, which we've already talked about for kind of how that scoring goes. Um, all dogs were hospitalized for at least three days and kind of that standard protocol treatment was used. So IV crystalloid fluids, antiemetics and so forth. Yeah. And they mentioned that these dogs were actually enrolled in another unrelated study or yes, I do. Yeah. I do remember where it was probably some other HGE study, but basically they were collecting samples from them because one of them ended up getting antibiotics as part of whatever randomization Mm -hmm. um, they were getting, which I have a little beef about that one, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so um, I guess moving into results. um, So um, all the dogs were negative for canine parvovirus and no salmonella species were isolated from the fecal cultures. Mm Um, for at presentation, and so this is where I'll have to be specific on the names of those three proteins. Um, but all three of them were increased. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, all were increased at presentation, and by day three, all of them had decreased. Um, the HGEAI score was not correlated with the levels of those three proteins that were tested. Um, and I also noted that only the levels of the fecal canine calprotectin and that S100A12 were significantly correlated on days one and three. Um, since they wanted to look at bacteria within the feces there, and I'm going to definitely butcher how I say these names, um, mm-hmm. there were low abundances of, we got Calibacterium species, yeah. Bifidobacterium species, and I'm not sure how to say the rumino. Yeah, that one. That sounds great. Okay. Um, There's like 19 (laughs) C's in that word. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then um, they also noted for their results section that the concentrations of fecal canine calprotectin, S100A12, the three proteins, Mm -hmm. as well as the abundance of ruminococcaceae significantly decreased over the study period. Yeah. And so a bit of a shorter result section compared to the the previous paper but which is nice nice and tidy I like these types of studies yeah and so uh, next they moved into discussion and so so yeah was there anything that struck you in those results uh not in particular um I don't know much so I don't know much about those bacteria that they discussed so I couldn't really draw much of my own conclusions about those organisms just because I would probably have to ask Dr. Hodgson some questions just because <laughs> I, I'm not super familiar with those. So one thing I noted, so there's, as you said at the, at the beginning, this was a pretty small study. There were seven dogs. Yeah. Um, uh, interesting. If, if you look at table one, um, where they just list the seven dogs and a little bit of information, then they also listed um, results of some of the uh, testing they did. Mm-hmm. So they did Clostridium perfringens enterotoxin testing, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, Clostridium difficile toxin testing. And then they also did Giardia testing. And mm-hmm. Two of the dogs, two of the seven dogs tested positive for Giardia. Mm-hmm. Two of the seven dogs tested positive for um, C. perfringens enterotoxin. And two, di- and these were all different dogs. None of the dogs had more than one. Two other dogs tested positive for the C. difficile toxin. Um, the cluster, or sorry, the Giardia one kind of bothered me. I was like, wait, Giardia, what? We don't care about that? Does that not? Does that not cause disease anymore that I like, so I was confused about that, why mm-hmm. they were like, they seem to be okay with that yeah. um, as, as a confounder. Um, the other two things I think were interesting because um, when we talk about the potential 
<clears throat> the theories of what causes um, HGE or HDS, the clostridial toxins are among the, the more popular theories. And this study doesn't really, it doesn't support that because only, um, you know, well, four of the seven dogs had some sort of toxin, but not consistently. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think those are sort of interesting findings. And then we can talk a little bit more about like how, how we interpret the results of this study. So that was just, those are some of the things that struck me. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what's your takeaway from this? What's, there's yours and then there's what theirs was, but uh, I'm curious to know what your takeaway is. So something I, I noted as a kind of a critique on my end is, you know, they, they talk about using these three proteins, but in their discussion, there's really no comment on their thoughts and the usefulness of it mm -hmm. um, to kind of just, I guess, bring everything together from what they discussed. And so, I mean, this is a small, a small sample size, but mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to be like these are reliable markers, kind of like yeah. C-reactive protein. There's just, you know, maybe one day we'll have a more reliable marker for the syndrome, but I, I think we're not, we're not there yet. And, yeah. um, you know, I, yeah. So, considering that was one of the main focuses of this report, I thought it would have been nice if they kind of added a paragraph. Yeah. I mean, I know this was described as a brief communication at the, based on the type of report this was, but I think it would have been nice to have heard their concluding remarks on yeah. their consideration of this sure. those, um, those proteins usefulness. Um, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think that you take this away and you're like, okay, I'm going to use these markers clinically. What I think they are interesting for is trying to understand the pathophysiology of the syndrome mm -hmm. <clears throat> because we still don't know what the heck it is going on. Yeah. And so I, I think this is a, an interesting step forward and to say, what is going on? You know, we may not know uh, what, if any pathogen is, is precipitating this, but at least understanding the pathophysiology yeah. um, and how quickly it changes, I think I think that's really helpful um, because I think one other thing that people worry about, okay, well, the clinical signs of the HGE have gone away, but like, what about the inflammation? Is that still there? Well, and this is actually saying that the clinical signs are resolving really quickly and so are the signs of the inflammation. So I think that supports what we're seeing clinically, which is which is interesting and sort of confirming what we already thought. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's the potential for this to open up more questions for like, how is this happening? What is happening? Why is this happening? Um, uh, and, and that might get us one step closer to figuring out what the heck is causing this. So I do think it's useful in the larger scheme. I agree. I don't think this is going to change. And, and they're not proposing that this changes anything about necessarily how we manage this. Yeah. Um, but um, so I think that's a fair critique um, for sure. But it's still, again, it doesn't, it's still, like, I think, a useful addition to the literature. Yeah, certainly. And so it was, again, I hadn't heard of that stuff. So um, this was a lot of new learning for me as I read this paper. Um, and so um, it doesn't sound like you're going to start running these tests on all the dogs you see, though. <laughs> um, no, probably not at this point. Um, first, I'm going to figure out which patients need antibiotics if I there see you go, in these cases. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So what were your thoughts on on the methods? Like, you know, the, the seven dogs. What, what are your thoughts on that? Because one of the dogs had um, had some Clavimox on board. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I've, I've had to do... I've had to help with things with really small sample sizes before for research type things. And there's just not much you can do with seven. Not that 
the research isn't meaningful, but yeah. there's only so much, you know, takeaways you can have with such a yeah. small sample size. And so I, I was kind of like, did you need that seventh dog that got antibiotics? You could have yeah. just gone with six. Yeah. I was like, cause especially when you're looking at the, the amounts or the abundances of the different animi uh, or the different uh, pathogens, the different bacteria that were there, I was like, cause they didn't tease out. Um, I don't think so. Right. They didn't, that was for all seven dogs. Yeah, they didn't they didn't like take away the one that had gotten antibiotics and like how was that impacting these numbers? Yeah. Okay, another pet peeve of mine. Um, anytime the numbers are this small, like when they were reporting percentages of things, I was like, dude, come on. Percentage like what where was this? They were reporting the percentages of dogs. Oh yeah, yeah. So under the results section, like the second paragraph. Um so the the different barriers of the markers they measured were above the suggested reference intervals in six dogs. And then they put 86%, 86%. And then this number decreased. So like, for example, um, the canine alpha one PI was in five of seven dogs. So 71% um, on day one. And by day three, it had dropped to four dogs. So from five dogs to four dogs, and that drops it from 71% to 57%. Those are very misleading percentages, right? Yeah. When you only, so my preference is when um, people produce or when they publish studies with numbers that small is they don't even put the, the, uh, percentages because yeah. I just think they can be so misleading you're like wow that dropped from 71% to 57% that yeah. seems really really impressive and you're like it was one dog yeah and you're like <laughs> one one dog so it started with five and went to four and you're like mm, that's not as impressive anymore yeah um so I, I do you just you have to take a lot of that um and and you you said that from the get-go it's a small number of dogs you have to be careful and I don't think in general they tried to overstate their findings I don't yeah. think that and I think the authors did a nice job of being like here's what we found but just even when they like report the percentages. I'm like, oh, don't even do it. Just tell me the end. So it went from this to this. Like uh, the percentages are irrelevant, and and if anything, just misleading. Um, they make it something seem like there's more to it than than not when the numbers are that small. Yeah, that's a good point to make because I think I'm someone that normally I prefer the numbers over the percents when I look at things, and um, I just had completely overlooked kind of how that percent had changed just because I was looking at the numbers, and it, it is pretty misleading. Yeah, if, if you're if you're someone that um, like yeah. looks at percents particularly more. Um, I tend to focus on numbers, but that, that's a good point to make. Yeah. Because I think we often do that. You know, people want to know the percentages and, but you're like, it was seven dogs. There are no percentages here. Yeah. Like that. It's a, it's, it's not a good thing to do. Um, and you know, percentages are helpful when you're talking about 13,000 patients. Like, yeah, okay. I need to know the percentages. Yeah. Um, that really, that really helps. It's also, again, they weren't trying to, you know, say that this was statistically significant between that. Well, they did try to do some of that, um, but mostly in like the, the numbers that they could. And again, I think that it gets a little bit dicey. I would be yeah. very cautious in interpreting any of these changes and, and what that would mean with such a small sample size. Um, and they did report some p-values for like, um, you know, the, uh, that one's a little dicey because the activity index, that's, you know, uh, it really should, it's it's medians you're comparing them the median scores um it's not a mean because they're ordinal data but um yeah for the uh calprotectin and the um the other biomarkers yeah i mean you can see and you can just report the numbers and be like yeah those dropped quite a bit um you know from from day one the uh alpha one proteinase inhibitor was 114 um micrograms per gram and then dropped down to 22 I, I clinically i don't know what that's supposed to mean but i'm like sure that that seems relevant um but when you look at like the abundance of the different bacteria i'm like well that this is weird so like the the rumino I don't know how to say it either. But so this one's interesting. Day one, it goes from 137 times 10 to the third. Um, it's quantification. This is usually colony forming units. I assume that's what that is. Yeah. Um, 
And then on day two, it went up to 237. And then on day three, it dropped all the way down to 21.7. And I'm like, I don't know how to interpret that. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, or some of the other ones that didn't really, like the um, proteobacteria was pretty much not any different. For the um, bifidobacterium, it was pretty much not any different. So I was like, I, but I don't know what to make of that. And when yeah. the numbers are, that could have been one dogs that threw everything off. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I think just, remembering that it's a small study doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. Again, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff we can learn from it. But when you start um, trying to lump everything together and give me percentages, I go, mm, there's only a handful of dogs. I don't know if we can do that just yet. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's really interesting to start looking at these different markers, not as this is going to change how we clinically practice, but this is how we help learn what the heck's going on. Yeah, that's what I was going to follow up with that this paper and this wasn't the paper's goal. It's not going to change how I when I treat these patients, which I might be doing so here soon. Yeah. Um, again, the goal wasn't to, I think, change how anyone treats these patients. No, no. Um, but I, I liked this paper because it kind of gave me some insight into what currently the research looks yeah. like around this topic. Yeah. And from what I gathered from these two papers, there's still a lot more research to be done. Absolutely. And the folks at the the GI lab at Texas A&M, like that's the, that is the center for GI laboratory research, um, really in, in dogs and cats in the world. Like that, it's, it's amazing there. So, um, a lot of, you know, credit to them. They're doing a ton of stuff out there and a lot of really important research has come out of that. And then similarly in Europe, as a lot of these studies on, um, HGE or AHDS, they've done a lot of big prospective, retrospective, really useful studies on, on managing these. So, um, these, these are both, I think, really important, um, articles just cause they're flawed. Every single paper that comes out has some flaws, um, yep. that doesn't make them not, not beneficial official. And I think they were both well done. Um, and you know, it's just our job to be a little, a little critical of things. So, okay. I have a question for you. Okay. What do you think causes HGE or AHDS? What's your, like, it doesn't matter. We don't know, but like you're, you're positing this, like, this is your theory. This is going to be documented for posterity. And so we'll find out one day, maybe if you're right, but what do you think causes this? I would probably, so, I mean, I remember one, (laughs) one paper was talking about, you know, dietary components. I don't know if I, I think the likelihood of all the dogs that get this this syndrome having eaten something similar to, I I think I'm leaning <laughs> towards something bacterial. Yeah, yeah. I think that's going to be my final guess. Final guess. Um, now I like it. I'm quite a novice in reading papers on this topic, so I got to take what I say with a grain of salt. Oh yeah, I'm not but, holding you to it. Yeah. No, we, nobody knows. <laughs> I don't know either. But my guess, I think it's viral. There's going to be a virus we haven't identified oh, yet. That's a good point. Yeah, that's my theory. There's a, there's some viral bug that just gives them acute hemorrhagic diarrhea and that's self-limiting, which is like a lot of viruses. They feel really sick for a bit and then they're okay. Yeah. Like a rotavirus or something like that. It's not going to be a rotavirus. We probably would have found that, but yeah. yeah. So all the virologists out there, like, here you go, you can discover the new virus. Um, and then, you know, give me a teensy tiny bit of credit or I'm wrong and it's a bacteria, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, or something else or a prion or, you know, that would be some other alien species of pathogen we've never discovered yet. Yeah. Or terrifying, but (laughs) that would viruses. That's a good guess. Virus is always my guess when there's some, when we have a syndrome and we don't know what causes it. I always assume it's a virus. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah. my that's my standardized guess I think it legitimately is a possibility in in this case I think it's a virus that causes IMHA that we don't identify I think it's a virus for all of those things it's always a virus that's an yeah. I blame viruses for everything <laughs> yeah 
Um, anyway, but this one, I think it's actually, it could be true. I think this totally could be a virus Okay, or, well, or it could be a prion, which is like a virus, virus particles. Yeah. So, well, I'm going to be following and that would be interesting if that's, we'll come back and we'll yeah. talk about it. Be like, remember back when we have it, we have it recorded. Yeah. Um, we'll find out it was probably neither of us will be right. <laughs> will something be something totally else, off. but that'll still be cool. And we will talk about it. Um, well, awesome. I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Um, so that we could talk about some articles. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was um, a great time. So yeah. Thanks for coming back. I'm sure you'll be back again. I have no doubt that yeah. you will come no, back. No, I'd love to. And, and talk about, so next time you have, uh, another, uh, you know, another topic that you want to learn about and you want to talk about it here, please let me know. We'll be happy to have you back. Sounds awesome. Well, thanks Haley so much. This was great. It was a lot of fun and thank you all for listening and we will catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>